Hello, and welcome to a special episode. Today, I feel that I need to apologize to you, my faithful listeners, although up until now I have made a point of not speaking of myself directly because I don't want to detract in any way from the reading of the poem of the man-god. But I've had a series of setbacks, some minor, some significant, which might even be considered a spiritual attack. Actually, I hadn't even thought of it in those terms until I started to write down what I wanted to say in this episode. But I know from reading the lives of the saints that the devil definitely uses attacks and distractions to prevent a new apostolate from forming. And I'm very hopeful that that is what will happen from this podcast, a new apostolate based on the wonderful gospel story revealed in the poem of the man-god. But although I was refraining from making this podcast about myself in any way, I've come to believe that it might be necessary, if only to rebuild your burgeoning trust in me to continue this reading, to explain a little about myself. If you aren't interested, then please feel free to skip to the next episode. The readings of the poem of the man-god will resume in the next episode, but if you're still with me, then here goes. First, to satisfy your curiosity about the recent spiritual attack, It's been one thing after another for the past several months. My older brother, Pete, lost his wife of 40 years and was simultaneously having heart problems that were affecting his ability to take care of himself. Since I lived closer to him than any of my siblings, I stepped in to, one, help him get pack up and move, and two, take him to the emergency room several times, trying to find an accurate diagnosis for his medical issues. It sounds simple in retrospect, but the whole process was protracted for several months and complicated by misdiagnoses. Then, once that situation seemed settled, my nephew, only 37 years old, dropped dead from a heart attack. But he was revived and remained hospitalized for two weeks. In the end, his condition was irreparable, and he passed away. God rest his soul. Then, almost immediately, my other brother, Philip, began having severe vertigo with nausea so debilitating that he had to be taken by ambulance to the nearest ER on two occasions. His gradual recovery was painfully slow and miserable, but he is finally back to work. Helping with his recovery also fell on to me, as, well, my husband says that I'm the family caregiver. When one of my siblings needs help, I'm often the one they call. I was the last of 13 children, a baker's dozen, my dad called us. As the baby, I confess, I always felt rather inept, since my whole childhood I was incapable of keeping up with my older sisters. Oh, there were six boys, all much older than me, and seven girls. But God has a sense of humor, because after I got married, I became the mother of nine. I'm a cradle Catholic from a large family, what might today be considered traditional. Nobody used that term when I was growing up. We just attended Mass weekly, prayed the rosary daily, kept all the church traditions, and even, my kids are always surprised when I tell them this, fasted before Mass every week and abstained from meat every Friday. Life was very different then. Since my reversion, I have returned to those precious traditions. Now I have my own large family with all its struggles and joys. 
It's the toughest and most rewarding job I can think of. I can assure you that being the parent of a large family is a whole lot harder than being the baby of a large family. One of my five sons was brain injured at one year old due to an infectious disease. His disability is classified as cerebral palsy. His special needs have shaped our family in many ways. For one thing, his four brothers have all had a tender devotion for him from the time when they were very young, helping him with his daily needs and play. And even once they'd moved out of the house, keeping in close contact with him, visiting frequently and taking him out for some wholesome fun. Since Adam is older than all four of his sisters, he has been both a guardian of sorts, keeping an eye on them when they were younger, and alerting mom if there was any serious trouble, and also someone they needed to help take care of. I think having a disabled older brother was very influential in shaping their characters. These days, only the three youngest siblings live with us, along with Adam. Their company brightens his days, since the COVID lockdown shut down the adult day program he was attending. I'm not sure how much I should tell you about myself, but my sister is urging me to open up about my life and struggles, so here I go. Again, feel free to skip to the next episode if this is simply too much information. Several years ago, our pastor asked me to give my testimony at a women's retreat in our parish. I was actually stunned. I'm nobody special, I told him. Why would anybody be interested in my testimony? But Father Harris knew that our family had been through some difficult trials, not the least of which was having a son with cerebral palsy. So I accepted based on his reassurance. I will share that testimony with you now. If opposites attract, then my husband and I should have been the happiest couple in the world. He likes long, hot showers. I like a cool, refreshing rinse. He likes the leanest meat you can find. I prefer a little fat marbling my meat. I like a strong, hot cup of coffee. He likes a tepid, weak cup of tea. At home, I love to open all the shades and let the sunshine into the rooms. He prefers to shut himself in like Count Dracula, with all the shades drawn tight, making the room as dark as a cave. I often catch myself going behind him opening the shades without realizing that he just came behind me and closed them all. And Rick is a night owl. He likes to stay up late at night. He loves those quiet hours when the kids are all asleep, so he'll often stay up half the night. But I can't even keep my eyes open by the time I get the kids all settled down. Then again, I love to get up and watch the sunrise. I think it's a shame to hurry through the morning and missing that beautiful spectacle God paints across the sky every morning. When we were first married, my husband and I were like that old TV show, The Odd Couple. That old show was based on the story of two divorced men, Felix and Oscar, sharing an apartment together. Felix was OCD cleany, and Oscar was basically a slob. In retrospect, I have the impression that the writers of the show were actually more sympathetic to the slob rather than the cleanie, who was portrayed as being uptight, rigid, neurotic, and annoying. But in the show, the slob character, Oscar, considered himself to be the more reasonable one of the two. He preferred to keep the apartment with a lived-in look, meaning that he left a trail of mess behind himself without consideration for how that could be annoying to his cleanie roommate. 
and of course the dialogue was intended to be comedic, so we as the audience were laughing along. It was funny to watch how these two opposites got on each other's nerves. But it isn't funny in real life. Opposites attract. We all know that. We've heard it dozens of times. It's a truism which sort of slips past us because of its simplicity. But it's also very profound. Have you ever held two magnets in your hand? I'm sure you have. And you can feel the two magnets pulling toward each other as if nothing could keep them apart. Not unlike the proverbial boy-meets-girl attraction. But something I found remarkable was that if you turn the two magnets around so that the like poles face each other, then they repel. You can't even force them together. And I think there's an important metaphor in that, finding a nugget of God's wisdom left for us to discover. You know how everything ends up in Mom's bag. One day I was left holding two of my son's magnets, and when I turned them around to reverse the polarity, I was very surprised at the strength of the resistance when I tried to push the two like poles toward each other. No matter how firmly I pushed them together, they pushed each other away. No amount of forcing could get those two like poles to allow themselves to be stuck together. It was remarkable. Immediately I made the connection. I had always known that my husband and I were opposites in many respects, and I often commented it, that it was precisely because we were opposites that we could complement each other. As I came to think of it, if we were both the same, then one of us would be superfluous, unnecessary. If you think of how your left hand and your right hand are opposite in design, like a mirror image of each other, and you consider that they complement each other because of their differentness, then you might realize that it's precisely because they are opposed that they can work together with synchronicity. In fact, if they were identical in design, they wouldn't be able to work together as well. And in our marriage, I discovered my husband had strengths which could exactly compensate for my own weaknesses, and conversely, where he was weak, I was strong. It's no accident. God designed us that way on purpose. In fact, it's precisely the differentness of men and women which causes them to fit together, like the cogs in a gear. One cog fits precisely into the slot of the coinciding gear. To the extent that we learn to appreciate the genius of God's design in making men and women opposite in so many ways, we can learn to value each other's strengths and forgive each other's weaknesses. But something which might not be so obvious about this metaphor hidden in God's design, is the significance of how not only do opposites attract, like the opposite poles of magnets, but likes repel, and repel very strongly. It finally dawned on me that just as our opposing qualities could make us complementary to one another, it was our like qualities which caused us to repel in our day-to-day -day lives. And what are those qualities which my husband and I have in common? Basically, what it comes down to is sin, selfishness, and self-centeredness. That's what we have in common. Like most men and women, both of us struggle with the seven deadly sins. Pride, anger, envy, sloth, greed, lust, gluttony. If our different qualities pull us together, our similarities, our common sinfulness, is the dynamic which pushes us apart. Let me give you a little background about us. My husband is the oldest of four children, 
two boys and two girls. His family emigrated from Trinidad in the West Indies when he was five years old. His father is Muslim. His mother came from a very strict, charismatic Pentecostal church. But like most immigrants, they brought with them their culture, which they kept alive within their family. My husband used to say that he grew up on the island of Trinidad in upstate New York because his family imported their culture with them when they emigrated and kept it very much alive in their family. Myself, I'm the baby of a baker's dozen with six brothers and six sisters above me. My own father was a hillbilly from West Virginia and my mother was a Southern belle born in Mobile, Alabama. They met during the Second World War. She was a whack in North Carolina. Unlike my husband's family, we grew up poor. My father was a Catholic convert from Southern Baptist. My mother was a cradle Catholic. When we met in high school, my husband took on the project of getting me saved because Protestants believe that all Catholics are going straight to hell. I thought that was very generous of him to want to help me get saved, but I didn't really need saving. I was very happy being a cradle Catholic, and I never felt the need to look elsewhere for spiritual direction. Seven years later, we had decided to get married. My husband had converted to Catholicism, and we were both trusting that with God's grace, we would be able to accomplish what was, humanly speaking, a virtually insurmountable task, that of remaking ourselves for the sake of breaking the cycle of alcoholism we had both endured in our families growing up. We were hopeful and confident, and frankly, quite ignorant. But life is a lot harder than it looks in the beginning. Thank goodness we didn't know that, or we might never have embarked on the lifelong journey that marriage is. My husband and I have been married for 35 years now, and we have nine kids. And yes, I gave birth to them all. Most of them were born at home, but that's another part of the story. One of our five boys was brain injured at one year of age due to an infection which went to his brain, a form of encephalitis. So not only do we have a large family, but our family has been deeply altered by the effects of Adam's brain injury. It's one of the milestones of our lives. We didn't know it then, but most marriages which go through the loss or near death of a child break under the trauma. Over 80% divorce rate, the statistics say. Our marriage survived that trauma in the early years of our marriage because of the faith we had in common then. It was our strong faith that helped us to pull together and support each other through the trial. We prayed together, we cried together, and we held each other up through the most terrifying ordeal we had ever experienced. The hardest times in our marriage happened later when we allowed our prayer life to be stifled and strangled by the busyness of life when we forgot God in the scuffle of just trying to keep running on the treadmill of our responsibilities. My father used to say that marriage isn't just about being happy, it's about becoming holy. When I was younger, that just sounded like a vague platitude to me. But as time went on and the infatuation of the honeymoon period began to fade, I came to understand the truth of that statement. Marriage isn't just about being happy. It will make you happy, and it should. But most marriages go through periods when one or the other spouse isn't very happy. And that's okay. That's built into the contract, so to speak. It's in the design plan that when either partner is unhappy in the relationship, the commitment of the marriage vow 
holds the relationship together until the happy feelings gradually return. And they will return as long as both partners are honestly working toward their own holiness. The extent of each either partner's ha- unhappiness is in direct proportion to his or her spiritual wellness and relationship with God. But as the years went by in the aftermath of Adam's illness and the work of raising our family wore us down little by little, the thing that we gave up was our prayer life. And neither of us became aware of how hard we were struggling to keep going in the absence of the vibrant prayer life that we used to have until we came to another crisis. Neither of us had been aware of how our neglect of maintaining our faith through prayer had weakened us as a couple. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Our faith life cannot be sustained on its own. We have to stay connected to the sacred heart of Jesus so that we can have his strength living in us. Without that connection, we spend a lot of energy trying to superimpose onto ourselves the virtues, the righteousness that Jesus himself would provide for us when we stay connected to him. Years ago, Dr. James Dobson gave the illustration of a parasitic vine growing on a beautiful, mature tree in his yard. He knew he would have to kill the vine, or the vine would eventually drain the life out of the tree. But the vine had twisted itself around the entire tree, sinking its teeth into the tree from all sides. It was so strong that he was afraid that any method he used to kill the vine would also kill the tree itself. But one day he came up with a solution. He took a machete and chopped right through the base of the vine, a clean cut through. At first the vine seemed unaffected by the blow. There was no evidence whatsoever of the fatal damage. But a few days later some of the leaves on the vine had fallen dead to the ground. As more time went by, the vine simply dried up, even while still attached to the base of the tree. Once it was dead, it was easy to remove and the tree was free to regain its strength. When I think of that illustration, I think of how easy it is for us to become detached from the vine of Jesus' grace. Initially, there may not be any obvious signs of our separation. We feel fine. We don't even notice when we begin to dry up spiritually because we're no longer receiving the nourishment which is essential to our spiritual lives. Prayer dissipates. Sacraments get forgotten and sin gets a stronghold. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If we allow ourselves to become separated from the source of all our strength, then we begin to die. But we may not even feel like we're dying. We may not even realize that we're slowly being strangled to death by sin. All of that is to illustrate my own personal discovery that every marriage has issues that maybe the very purpose of marriage is to learn to deal with the issues, forgiving each other as we wish to be forgiven ourselves. But that's a lot easier said than done. I can tell you that. When my husband and I went for counseling to help us deal with our marital issues, the counselor gave us some assigned reading. I had already read a small library full of self-help, over-the-counter psychology and relationship books, looking for the answers to what could heal our damaged relationship. But this little booklet the counselor gave me to read hit me right between the eyes. The premise of the booklet was in the title, God Wants Me to Be the First to Change. It was one woman's testimony 
of how she came to forgive her husband for multiple infidelities and their relationship found healing through God's love. I hated that book. It infuriated me. The author was insistent that what God taught her through the struggles in her marriage was that even if she could prove that her husband was wrong and she was a person who had incontrovertible proof, nevertheless, God wanted her to be the first to change. I read that book and I argued with the author from afar. On some level, I knew she was right, but in my head I tried to refute the logic of her argument. Each time I thought I had a convincing argument in my favor, I kept hearing scripture verses echoing in my head, reiterating what Jesus himself tried to tell us. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Every time I prayed that prayer, I was convinced. The message is clear. I cannot expect God to forgive me if I refuse to forgive. It was an ongoing struggle for many months as events in our marriage unfolded. What I came to learn was that it's always easier to notice the splinter in my husband's eye without even realizing that I have a beam in my own. The devil cleverly uses my righteous indignation against my husband's perceived wrongs against me when I'm sure he's being unreasonable or unfair to keep me from looking at myself. As long as I keep looking at my husband's splinter, then I don't have to do the hard work on myself to deal with my beam. It's a terrible truth and a cruel deception from the enemy because it makes man and wife feel as if they're enemies or at best adversaries in a battle of wills always feeling the need to make the other wrong in order to defend their own right. Divide and conquer. A ruthless, clever plan of attack which destroys so many marriages today. Because the devil hates everything that's good. Love is good. Marriage is good. Family is good. When a marriage is strong, then the family is strong. When the family is strong, then the children are well protected and secure safe to grow up into strong, healthy adults, and later build their own families. But when Satan succeeds in turning good marriages into a battleground of wills, then the children get caught in the crossfire. The solution is not to end the marriage. That's what the enemy wants people to think, that divorce is the best way to protect the children and rescue them from the crossfire of their parents' conflicts. But divorce is never the solution that it seems to be. Instead, Divorce creates a whole host of other problems, usually more serious and devastating to the children than the conflict they witnessed between their parents. Divorce doesn't end that conflict, it intensifies it. After divorce, the gloves come off and all the rules of fair fighting get thrown out the window. Then the children are caught in the never-ending crossfire of a much more serious war of wills, with no holds barred. And in the conflict, much too often, the children are left vulnerable. One of the books I read during the difficult years was a longitudinal research study recorded by psychologist Judith Wallerstein called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. She started her study of the long-term effects of divorce on children at a time when the prevailing thought was that children were better off if their parents divorced because it supposedly relieved them of being caught in the middle of their parents' conflict. But Ms. Wallerstein discovered evidence which incontrovertibly refuted that line of logic, and her work was the only one of its kind. The result of her study 
were met with stunned silence by the psychologists of the day. And decades later, she continued to have informal contact with those same children who were interviewed in the initial study so that the findings continued to pour in as the lifelong effects of divorce which followed the children of divorce into their own marriages and relationships. I think maybe if I hadn't read that book by Judith Wallerstein and that other horrible little booklet, I might have given in to the overwhelming temptation to put an end to the pain caused by the conflict in my marriage. I think I would have given in and separated from my husband. I'm not proud of that statement, but I want to be honest with you, because maybe there's one person out there who needs to know that it can be done. It's possible, even when it seems completely impossible, even when everyone around you tells you that you're a fool for even trying. It was because I was so convinced that God simply couldn't condone something that he hates. Malachi 2.16 says, I hate divorce. That divorce is never the solution, even when the solution seems otherwise impossible, that I wouldn't allow myself that option. And there were many times when I was convinced that the marriage would simply implode in spite of my best efforts and long-time perseverance. But just when I thought I'd come to a dead end and that I might have to finally admit defeat and give up, then circumstances changed inexplicably and I found a temporary reprieve. Each time. Every time. Eventually, I came to understand that it didn't really depend on me and that it wasn't necessarily anything that I was doing or wasn't doing, that it was all about trusting God and allowing Him to work all things together for good. I prayed almost every waking moment of every day. I prayed my li- like my life depended on it, and frankly, I really think it did. In my mind's eye, I saw myself in the midst of a storm at sea, clinging to a buoy as the only means of safety. And that buoy was Jesus. And I haven't even told you that it was through the intercession of the Blessed Mother that I found my strength. It was the Blessed Mother on whose knees I threw myself and wept. It was a rosary of prayers I wove for her daily through my tears. I have no doubt that it was entirely due to her motherly intercession that we received a miracle to heal our family. People see our family today and they're amazed. They marvel at our nine beautiful children. They're impressed at the kids' love and affection for one another and for us. Whenever that happens, I simply say a quiet thank you to the Blessed Mother, because I know it wasn't me. It wasn't anything that I did right. In fact, it was in spite of everything that I did wrong, except that I clung to Jesus and his beautiful mother. I just wouldn't let go. And sometimes when I thought my strength was failing to just keep holding on, I'd ask her to hold on to me instead. And I guess she heard all my prayers because she's answered everyone. Thank you so very much. That's the close of my testimony that I gave years ago. And I think I'll just let that be the close of this podcast. And thank you for listening. And I do hope that you'll stick with me as I work through the bumps and get back on track. Thank you so much and God bless you.